This is Zealous, an in-depth look behind the scenes of legal matters straight from the attorneys of Gimbel, Riley, Garen, and Brown. Welcome to Zealous. I'm Brianna Meyer, and this is the place to immerse yourself in the legal world. Today, we have returning guest, Raymond Delasto here. You might remember him from our Marcy's Law episode we did a while back. Um, and today we are covering a different topic with Ray. We are talking about the Josh Duggar trial and more so what could happen at the upcoming sentencing and how federal sentencing hearings work. Um, for those of you who are not aware, I'll give a, a very brief background on the case. But um, Mr. Duggar was uh, from a quote unquote celebrity family. They were on a TLC show called 19 Kids and Counting. He was the oldest. And uh, he was charged with one count of receiving child pornography and one count of possessing child pornography. Ray, what is the what's the difference between those two? Well, the federal law differentiates and for uh, distributing child pornography, you have an enhanced or greater sentence. Mm -hmm. The problem is these days, uh, child pornography images are transmitted over the internet. Mm -hmm. So if one uh, is on some of these sharing services or chat rooms or the equivalent of uh, the pornography equivalent of a uh, Napster or mm -hmm. Spotify. These are uh, groups that build on and feed each other. Your computer is communicating with others. You are distributing what has just come into your computer, even though you may not know it, but uh, the federal government and the current statutes say, so what, that's too bad. And, right. uh, you will suffer and you can hit, be uh, charged with both possession and distribution mm -hmm. just for that. The only way you would have a pure possession would be if they were be actual hard copy images or something, let's say on a now uh, outdated technology, a CD or DVD <laughs> or whatever. And you you mentioned, you know, the, the equivalent to a Napster or something like right. that. I think it's important to note because in, in this case, basically, uh, Mr. Duggar was caught by an undercover investigation with one of these programs. I think it's important to note that these programs most of the time are found on what's called the dark web. And that's not a web that is readily accessible to uh, people scrolling the internet every day. It's not something that people are just going to stumble into. Is that right, Ray? That's correct. And you have uh, various, if you want to call it sites, which uh, are purveying erotic or pornographic, uh, you know, uh, materials, pictures, whatever else, videos. And some of those could lapse over. Many of them uh, talk about, you know, younger, this and that. But there is a lot available on the, we want to call it the regular internet. And then when you go into the dark, mm -hmm. then you are uh, having things which someone has to have some particular knowledge of how to get there. But it doesn't, you don't have to be a rocket science. Right. It, somebody will tell you this is the link to get in and then boom, then you go ahead. Exactly, exactly. And sometimes it's, uh, you know, how people download Google Chrome. It's like downloading a different browser. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So you may see on Google, they have uh, the incognito mode <laughs> that's going so someone would not be able to track you. Well, mm -hmm. it, as you said, it would be basically something that's fairly simple to do. Right. 
Right. It, like you said, it does not take a rocket scientist to, to get onto this, but it is something that typically you need to take affirmative action. You're not just going to stumble upon this. Now, after Mr. Duggar was charged, he was released to a third party custodian. Ray, break that down for our listeners. What does that mean? Well, when one is arrested, typically, uh, bail is set and bail can either be in a federal case like this um, in state cases similar can either be cash it could be a personal recognizance bond or it could be uh, a combination of these maybe some property is posted there uh, as well and then you can have uh, various conditions put on if it's a property bond uh, or it may be in a federal case you're going to be turned over to the custody of pre-trial mm-hmm. services, and they can decide whether you come in. It's sort of like being on probation even before you're convicted. Mm-hmm. And then uh, you will have sometimes that's there's electronic monitoring, sometimes there are more restrictions, and uh, sometimes you can actually be put into the, uh, uh, if you want to call it custody, quote, unquote, of yeah. someone who is actually supervising what you're doing. And these services in um, Milwaukee, for example, in some counties around here, you have WCS or mm-hmm. Wisconsin Correctional Service does this in state court. And then they'll, if there are any violations of condition of uh, uh, bail, they will report those to the court. In the federal system, they're even closer watching uh, with pretrial services. Mm-hmm. And they released him to a third party custodian. So it wasn't, he has a wife and he has children. So it wasn't back to his own home. And obviously we're speculating here. Do you think that has something to do with the underlying crimes or? It's pretty much standard breed that when you um, get a possession of child porn Mm -hmm. charge against you, that one of the conditions of bail is going to be that you not have contact or at least unsupervised Mm -hmm. contact with persons under 18. That's considered a child in Wisconsin and every other Mm -hmm. state in the country. That poses a problem if you're a parent and you have children under the age of 18, even though the pictures you're being charged with and maybe even the place of where you're allegedly have looked at and may not have been the family home, this uh, across the board, no contact with children requirement, uh, you know, is done all the time. Mm-hmm. And it becomes a very difficult process to try to get an exception for uh, custodial parents so they can have contact mm-hmm. with the children. The system and the bail system really doesn't care about uh, cutting a parent off from their children mm-hmm. with such a drastic bail condition. And that's even if there was absolutely nothing and no involvement mm-hmm. or no actual uh, you know, sexual activity or whatever. The, the law just presumes for those bail condition purposes that um, you know you are a risk to children because mm-hmm. you had these images and therefore unless you prove otherwise and again all of this before trial you're supposedly mm-hmm. presumed innocent right. but this is what the bail conditions do in both federal and state court. Do you think that in Mr. Duggar's case? So let's first back up a little bit. A while ago, he admitted and his family admitted that he had uh, molested a few of his sisters while they were underage and while he was underage. And he was ultimately never charged with any of this, but he has come forward and and said that it's true. Do you think that that had something to do? Maybe, do you think it makes it harder for him to go in and get an exception to see his children? Absolutely, 
absolutely, where you have these admissions or uh, uh, allegations of other sexual activity or impropriety. So this is not just pictures, mm -hmm. this is actual activity that makes him a greater risk. And originally the concept of bail uh, was mainly um, just to ensure that you appeared for the next court appearance. Right. Beginning in the late 80s, you then had these concept of uh, preventive detention or we're gonna assess whether you're a danger to society mm -hmm. and uh, or pose a danger to the public and therefore need additional conditions or higher bail. We're having this debate right now in Wisconsin in light, unfortunately, of the, uh, uh, the Waukesha case where the car was driven into the parade. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Let's jump now because we kind of covered the pretrial and, mm -hmm. and I want to talk briefly about the trial, but the sure. big stuff I want to talk about is what's happened after the trial. Sure. So the trial itself was a six day trial, which I would say is pretty, it can be typical for these types of cases. It's nothing out of the ordinary. Correct. Um, the whole defense is that someone else was an unknown person was logging into Mr. Duggar's computer remotely because this was found on his work computer um, and they were doing it remotely on his computer. And they, they brought in uh, an expert digital forensic analyst to talk about it, um, basically claiming it was a hit and run hacking scheme. Now, ultimately there wasn't really any evidence to support that whatsoever. Um, but how, I guess, how important is it to have an expert when you're trying to advance a theory like this? Having tried a number of computer crime cases and having tried in federal court, uh, uh, possession of child porn, distribution, whatever, mm -hmm. uh, those types of charges, it is absolutely critical that you have uh, at the very least a uh, uh, forensic computer or forensic mm -hmm. uh, cell phone analyst, depending on what type of digital device you're uh, using. And you need that for a consultation and an examination of the evidence. Mm -hmm. And uh, you can decide then. And this concept of a hit and run hacking scheme and hacking altogether, or another thing they call a Trojan horse, where you might open up one site and mm -hmm. then other information unknown to you flows into your computer mm -hmm. and ends up being in uh, the computer's memory or cell phone's memory. Those are true and those are valid concerns mm -hmm. that you need an expert to explore that. All of this has been made extremely more difficult because of a congressional act uh, called the Adam Walsh Law, which says we used to, and when I say used to, I mean in the early 2000s, uh, have a, uh, uh, get a confidentiality order. We would be able to get a uh, forensic mirror image of the computer uh, hard drive or the cell phone drive, whatever. And then our expert could examine that in the expert's office or whatever. Adam Walsh says, no, that you have to go to the law enforcement agency, whether it's uh, the criminal investigation division, uh, FBI's office, or even a local um, law enforcement agency and view it there. And they limit the type of viewing, uh, they limit the type of uh, software that can be applied. Uh, it sets the forensic evaluation back 70 years mm -hmm. in the manner in which it can be conducted. And it increases the costs phenomenally. And uh, 
supposedly the theory of this was that, well, each time that pornography is viewed, it might get out. Well, that's not the case. I mean, we had in our confidentiality orders that it would be viewed just on a computer, which was not linked to the internet. Mm -hmm. And um, the examiner and the expert would swear to that. And again, these are professionals who do this for a living. These are mm -hmm. not people who are out to distribute. Wisconsin, unfortunately, under former Governor Walker, followed suit, and we have our own state Adam Walsh law mm -hmm. equivalent, which, again, makes it more difficult, but you absolutely, in each and every one of these cases, have to have an expert to find out just how the images got there. Were the images in actually a uh, uh, intentionally created file or mm -hmm. saved file, or were they just the result of browsing and then were in what's called unallocated space, which is part of your memory, the computer's memory or cell phone. Mm -hmm. And just because you think you deleted it doesn't mean it's deleted. Oh, definitely it's not. back <laughs> into the unallocated section. Definitely you and not I deleted. know that, Brie, from trials we have done. Yeah. And the type of experts that were used in Mr. Duggar's trial would be uh, appropriate. Uh, uh, Bree and I had mm -hmm. a case uh, last year where we had an expert from um, Pennsylvania mm -hmm. who had done homeland security work and uh, was also on a task force. There is what they call the NICMIC, mm -hmm. uh, NCMIC which is a both quasi-private public uh, organization that assists law enforcement in identifying the source of images and whether they're real persons mm -hmm. and were they under the age of 18. So you need people who are experienced in this and they are few and far between in the uh, defense world. Right, and that kind of rolls into my next question for you is that they received a lot of criticism because this analyst, apparently this was her first time testifying and you know, I think that there was a lot of speculation that she is the only one they could find to say that these things could have existed. But in reality, there really aren't many to choose from to begin with. Is no, that fair? It's very fair. This is not like getting an accident reconstruction mm -hmm. expert or an engineer or a chemist in a drug case or a toxicologist. You have those quite a few uh, at least availability, quite a few people, whether it's in Wisconsin or the Midwest or whatever, you do have computer experts. But if you're looking at someone who's going to do these deep dives and defining that and are familiar with that, uh, you're talking to just a few uh, throughout the whole country. Mm -hmm. Now, can new experts come up and be trained? Uh, and is there always a first time testifying and first time? Of course. And that's how you learn. Mm -hmm. Ideally, you should have someone that uh, you mentored with, but mm -hmm. you can have a uh, uh, coursework, uh, whether it's through the uh, NCASE is one or FTK, Forensic mm -hmm. Toolkit for Computers, or Celebrite for cell phones. Those are the major software and there's training provided and certification. Uh, but you want to have that experience of doing enough analyses, and that can be for any expert the defense might have uh, a potential uh, attack point that the government can use right. to say they're not trained or mm -hmm. they were just brought in to hook up this idea. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and vice versa, too, because I know, Ray, sometimes we attack credibility of various experts for the state Absolutely. under the same theory. I mean, science should be neutral. But unfortunately, we see that, uh, you know, for example, let's say you have a homicide mm -hmm. case, cause of death, you have a uh, government paid appointed medical examiner. OK, 
okay, who is a pathologist, should be, although mm -hmm. uh, coroners don't have to be doctors at all. I was going to say, state. not in Wisconsin. Exactly. <laughs> right, and uh, in many states, they don't. So you have to have your own expert or at least have some expertise to know, uh, you know, and analyze the uh, uh, pathologist report. And I've seen too often in my uh, many decades of practice and trial work where you get a, um, an ME, um, a the medical examiner who should just be telling the facts straight and not mm -hmm. taking sides tend to want to side to help prove the government's case that right. this was homicide uh, and, or caused by a certain mm -hmm. uh, effect or whatever, rather than just lay it out. It's always heartening and always a breath of fresh air when you have someone, and this goes far too historical. Mm -hmm. Many of your listeners won't know the old uh, <laughs> Dragnet TV series, but the uh, Jack Webb was Sergeant Joe Friday. And he said, just the facts, ma'am. I just want to hear that. That's what I'll put in the report too, in his testimony. And mm -hmm. um, we need more of that. Just the facts. Well, my mom and her book club that are all avid listeners will know that one. So they'll appreciate that for sure. <laughs> Um, so ultimately what happens is the jury doesn't believe, uh, the, the Duggar's experts or the attorney's arguments and find Mr. Duggar guilty on both counts. Normally what happens is it proceeds to sentencing a couple months out, but in this case, the defense has since filed what's called a, a Brady motion. They're claiming there's a Brady violation because, uh, they're saying that the prosecution turned over some evidence, but it was too late in the game for them to really do anything about it. I want to break this down. Sure. First of all, what is a Brady violation? Okay. Uh, Brady versus Maryland was a United States Supreme Court decision from the 1960s, which uh, enshrined the concept in our law that you have a constitutional right to due process mm -hmm. at trial, and you have a right to discovery of exculpatory or helpful evidence, and you also have the right to discovery uh, of potential exculpatory evidence or evidence that uh, might lead you to be able to develop uh, questions and what we call, lawyers call impeachment to challenge or contradict government witnesses. Mm -hmm. And very often you will have in a investigative file of the a law enforcement agency statements from other individuals and they compile, uh, you know, who may or may not mm -hmm. fit the theory of the prosecution's case. And, pros and you may have law enforcement agencies and officers uh, bring over only a select group of reports when they meet with the prosecutor to have the charging conference. In Milwaukee, you uh, uh, county, the city of Milwaukee Police Department for many years and still does in a mur murder or homicide case had a special M file or murder file, which even the prosecutor would not get, they would have to go and sit down with the investigator at the police department. Mm -hmm. And unless the defense asked for the M file, they're not going to see it. Right. And uh, in Chicago, you had um, the um, police department there, the famous uh, street file and the running file. The running file is what went up to the state's attorney or the prosecutor. The street file was everything. <laughs> and uh, they fought to keep the street file uh, you know, out of defense hands. Mm -hmm. And that's a violation of Brady. Mm -hmm. And uh, what 
the defense did in Mr. Duggar's case is brought a motion for a new trial. Typically, that's not done until after sentencing. A lot of people think, well, can I move for a new trial or appeal? The appeal is done after sentencing. Mm -hmm. But sometimes you have situation of errors that are so strong uh, that should be addressed and a motion for new trial and need to be uh, right out of the box after the verdict comes in. The, there's another term for that. Uh, it can be a judgment notwithstanding the verdict. Mm -hmm. That can be in a civil case or in a criminal case. We call JNOV motion. Exactly. That was going to be my next question mm -hmm. is why are they raising it now? Um, but it sounds like it's because the Brady violation is so grave if a Brady violation exists. Yeah, it's grave and they believe it's so strong, at least that's mm -hmm. the argument that they want the trial judge to order a new trial. Trial judge heard, even though it was a jury trial, the judge heard the evidence and those uh, heard the objections on that would be closer to the case than let's say uh, three judges in a court of appeals reading transcripts mm -hmm. a year later. Okay, and uh, these types of uh, motions right after a verdict are, not the usual, but they happen and mm -hmm. they have to be brought, I think, uh, in the appropriate case. Would this argument be waived if they didn't bring it up before sentencing? The, if the break, it could be elaborated, it would not be in, in the term waiver in law is given up because mm -hmm. you missed an objection or you missed raising it at this point. Mm -hmm. If the record was clear already at the trial level, uh, then generally it would not be deemed to be waived. If it was, if it came up and wasn't realized by the defense until later, they would want to bring this motion mm -hmm. to, even if they knew it had a, a slim chance of being granted, they want to make the record that they had brought that motion to prevent later on the government arguing waiver on appeal. Right. So in this case, the the evidence is emails from a former employer or employee of Mr. Duggar, who now the defense is claiming that's the person that downloaded it, that it wasn't a drive-by hacking scheme, that it was him on Mr. Duggar's computer. What effect does this have on, well, I mean, first of all, if they retry the case, are they going to have to get a new forensic expert that has not previously testified that it had to be some drive-by hacking scheme. Well, probably, mm -hmm. all right, unless the expert uh, based that opinion on uh, some substantive evidence that they found in the mm -hmm. digital record, that it appears that there was access either through a router or um, some kind of computer hack that caused that. I would think this would be inconsistent, although uh, if someone accessed it, was the former employee the hacker? It all depends on uh, what right. the evidence, the forensic evidence and digital evidence trail shows. Mm -hmm. If it shows that there was access from a, using a password from a different location, mm -hmm. uh, would we be able to figure that out? Normally with uh, laptop or computer hard drives, geolocating, mm -hmm. uh, digital evidence is not present. Uh, it can be depending on what the program is, but on cell phones, it may be and often is. So that becomes, again, if it was accessed by a cell phone, perhaps if that's a theory. But I think 
I've had to bring motions for a new trial before mm -hmm. sentencing where um, in one case we had a fingerprint and DNA evidence came up, which you want right. to bring that out, which was so critical and we didn't have that at trial and it came out uh, later on mm -hmm. uh, because of a delay in getting us um, uh, reports we had previously asked for in discovery, et cetera. So it's critical, I think, to keep, make that record and make that known. Right. And then last question about this is if they are granted a new trial, they will probably have to file a, a Denny motion, which says, you know, we have a person that we're blaming for this. Is that right. correct, Ray? Right. And Denny is, it's uh, Denny versus, or state versus Denny in mm -hmm. Wisconsin, D-E-N-N-Y. Basically, uh, think of it as you're uh, pointing the finger at a third party. They mm -hmm. actually did the crime. Uh, and uh, you have to flag the court and Wisconsin, mm -hmm. if you're going to do this in federal court, if you're going to be blaming it on a third party, uh, again, notice you'll have to give the prosecutor. Mm -hmm. It's different than an alibi, right. although it's akin to that. Mm -hmm. Okay, An alibi means you are saying I was at a different place at that same time. Right the crime committed. Well, here it would be that not only did I not use my mm -hmm. computer, but someone else did. And here's the reason we believe X did that. So right. there would have to be notice both in reciprocal discovery to the government and probably the court would have to consider uh, whether to allow that in. Right. So in Wisconsin, a Denny motion in federal Always court, has to be brought. Right. in federal court. So like in Mr. Duggar's case, something similar, but not yeah, it will be called thing. a Denny right. motion. And again, this is being tried in federal court mm -hmm. down in Arkansas. But mm -hmm. again, uh, there is a duty of what's called reciprocal discovery. That means the defense, if they're going to be bringing in an expert or if they're going to have witnesses that talk about it being a third party uh, perpetrator, uh, they're going to have to flag that and share that with the government in advance of trial. Right, right. Okay, so that... I mean, is a very, very brief but comprehensive look at what's going on here. Obviously, this is something that Ray and I, I think we could talk about for hours sure. on that. And, we're not gonna, we that. <laughs> and we're not going to do that to our listeners. Um, but I want to jump ahead now to let's say that ultimately this case does go to sentencing. Federal sentencing versus state sentencing. What do you think are the biggest differences? Well, federal sentencing and state sentencing principles um, were largely governed or guided by what's called the American Bar Association criminal justice standards. And those were adopted and developed during the 1970s and went into the 80s. Uh, the federal system diverged uh, from many state systems, including Wisconsin's in 1987, when Congress passed uh, basically the uh, a federal sentencing reform, which uh, eliminated parole. Now, Wisconsin followed suit, unfortunately, in the late 90s, and that became effective in uh, 2000 with our so-called truth in sentencing regime, which means no parole. Keyword so-called. <laughs> yes, so-called. It's not truth. It just means more people go to prison and courts, is, courts' hands are tied in considering important factors. So the federal Sentencing Reform Act in the late 80s also uh, developed and uh, funded a, a sentencing guideline commission that put together a formula uh, called the Federal Sentencing Guidelines Manual. And it's three books and it has a little chart and grids 
Other states had done this. Minnesota had their guidelines. Wisconsin had guidelines, but they were uh, uh, advisory. They were not mandatory. Mm -hmm. The federal sentencing guidelines that were enacted and adopted beginning in the late 80s were mandatory on courts, and they strictly limited what courts could do once you figured out a uh, offense level mm -hmm. and then a criminal history category. Um, and it's all on a chart, uh, mm -hmm. which uh, you could perhaps post for readers. Or yeah, I'll put, a, I'll put a link in you the description. You can put it up on yeah. that. Um, it's very limited. You are in a box, basically, and the box might be uh, 30 to 37 months at an le offense level 19 or offense level 20 or 33 to 41 months. Um, and these offense levels, if you came in with uh, absolutely no record, you were clean as snow, you would get a criminal history uh, category one, but that is not gonna help you too much. No. And when you look at the guidelines, um, uh, formulations and uh, their calculus, mm -hmm. it's skewed grossly towards prison. And mm -hmm. that was the regime we operated under. Most federal judges signed petitions uh, to Congress to stop this mm -hmm. over this period of time because it's not right, it's not just, it's limiting them. Fi uh, even um, the former Supreme Court Justice uh, Kennedy had um, uh, sharply criticized this. And finally, in the uh, Booker decision, uh, United States versus Booker, uh, many years after the guidelines were adopted, uh, the court said, well, we are now going to interpret, and Booker was in 2005, that the guidelines are advisory and not mandatory, but courts should still give great credence to that and use that as a starting point. So from the late 80s until 2005, if you were in that little box, you ain't getting out. Right. And the only way you'd get out would be to try to argue for what's called a variance or downward departure. Or if the government felt that you were a cooperating witness, we can do what's later called a 5K uh, motion, 5K1 motion. You'll find in federal practice, a lot of numbers are used. Yeah, a lot of acronyms, and, a lot and of numbers. Wisconsin on sentencing, uh, you are guided still by the ABA standards mm -hmm. and a couple state Wisconsin Supreme Court mm -hmm. cases, which are the fundamental basis for sentencing, the McCleary case and the Galleon case. Mm -hmm. And those will be talked about often. So in federal criminal cases and in Mr. Duggar's case, there almost certainly will be what's called a PSI. Ray, can you break down what a PSI is? Right. A pre-sentence uh, investigation report. In the federal, Wisconsin, we call it in state court, a PSI. In the federal, uh, they have a little different, we'll call it a PSR, same thing. Mm -hmm. all right? And what is, this is, is the uh, uh, defendant who's been found guilty, whether after a plea or uh, after a finding of guilt by a, a jury or a court, if it's a court trial, will then have uh, this history, if you want to call and mm -hmm. put together. And it's about, can range from a, in the federal, it can be 15, 20, 25 pages long. Yeah. It's very uh, um, structured. It goes mm -hmm. through your past, your background. It also talks about the uh, offense levels that are to apply and any kind of enhancers. 
And it also uh, is ma become mandatory to have uh, victim impact input mm -hmm. statements in there. And then they're going to want, uh, as part of the process, a uh, offender statement. And an offender meaning that's the defendant, mm -hmm. that would be Mr. Duggar. They want his spin on that. Well, if he's going to maintain his innocence or that he's not guilty, the offender's uh, version will have to be uh, a bit more structured. Right. So it's not uh, typically uh, when one gets to sentencing, um, you no longer are trying the facts of mm -hmm. the case because that's already been decided either by your plea and admission or uh, by the verdict's find the jury's right. finding and verdict. So then you're going to be basically wanting to show acceptance of responsibility, uh, remorse, as well as uh, the positive attributes that uh, apply to you. Those positive attributes, while we still put them together, and most experienced lawyers who do criminal work will want to put together their own sentencing, a defense sentencing memorandum, which will highlight other aspects that would not be picked up by the uh, federal pretrial services for the PSR or in Wisconsin, it's the Department of Correction Probation Department will put together the PSI. In Wisconsin, they used to even have PSIs uh, in uh, misdemeanor cases. Those aren't done in misdemeanors anymore. Uh, and uh, it's not always the case that you need to have a PSI done in state court, mm -hmm. which makes it even more critical for a defense sentencing memorandum to come and be put together. The federal is more intensive, too, that they're going to go into deep background mm -hmm. on an individual's finances. They're going to want to see tax returns and uh, it gives the judge the full picture of who the defendant is coming before him or her. Right. And I think sometimes, you know, Obviously, sometimes it can be more beneficial to the government, but sometimes it can be more beneficial to the defense because it lets the judge know who this person is outside of the filings that they've seen, which normally is the goal of our memorandums that we submit. But this kind of aids that process. Yeah. A lot. And it's, again, supposedly going to be neutral. Well, it Quote is unquote. the government and it's the probation department mm -hmm. who will be either supervising or recommending um, a sentence recommendation to the court. Right. And at sentencing, if you have a PSR or PSI uh, report done on a defendant, that's mm -hmm. one variable, one recommendation to the judge. Then you'll have the prosecutor's recommendation. You'll have the defense recommendation. And in light of uh, what are the various victim rights mm -hmm. laws and statutes that have been enacted, since the late 80s, 90s, and now in Wisconsin, enhanced by Marcy's law, uh, you'll have statements that can either be in writing, a victim impact statement, or even um, a victim's or victim's family can, if there is a victim, uh, can uh, make statements in court to the judge. So that's another, uh, if you want to call it ball in the air, that mm -hmm. the judge has to juggle and deciding, uh, you know, what's the appropriate sentence. And just for our, our listeners to know, originally they thought the sentencing was going to be sometime in April. That's likely going to get pushed because of this new Brady motion. Um, but we will definitely keep you updated. And our, our update section is going to go to now in the towards the end of the podcast. So stay tuned for updates on other cases that we've talked about. Now I want to get to the fun part, the predictions. Obviously, we have not been at each court proceeding. We were not there for the trial. Like every other case we talk about, we are not saying that this will happen. Um, these are just fun predictions that we like to make based off of experiences that we've had um, and 
almost pure speculation. So none of this should be taken to heart too much. But first of all, Mr. Duggar has a total exposure of 40 years and $500,000 fine. That's for 20 for each, but combined, we're looking at 40. How long do we think is a realistic amount? If he, if the motion for a new trial is denied, if we go forward, what's a realistic sentence that we're looking at? In a federal case, as I mentioned, you have the guidelines, which even though we are post Booker, they still are out there Mm -hmm. and they become a part of the structure of the federal uh, uh, pre-sentence report that the judge will get. A PSR is always ordered in federal criminal cases, always, unlike state. Mm -hmm. And on this, uh, again, we have the uh, phenomenon of increased numbers of mandatory minimums Mm -hmm. that Congress or legislature has passed, which the court starts at. With the guidelines, you have not a mandatory minimum per se, but you have a base offense level. Right. And... um, Again, for those of you uh, uh, interested, the base offense level would be under the guidelines um, in the sentencing guideline manual 2G2.2, okay? Trafficking and material involving sexual exploitation, receiving, transporting, possessing. All of these are included within that. And if the defendant is convicted of a certain charges, the base offense level will start at 18. Mm-hmm. And otherwise, it would be 22. Well, at an 18, assuming Mr. Duggar has no prior criminal history, he, that puts him between 27 and 33 months. Right. However, it's not over. The federal guidelines have enhancements that need to be calculated. And if it's a financial mm-hmm. crime, it would be the amount of the loss or the fraud. In the child pornography cases, the, do any of the... Um, images involve a prepubescent minor or someone who's younger than 10, 12 years old under 2G2, again, it's B2. It does it involve the use of a computer. Well, they all involve the right. use of a computer, virtually, unless very few DVDs, CDs, whatever. And mm-hmm. a case I tried, it was a two-week-long trial. There was a mix of both computer and there was a sting that uh, caught my client. Uh, and... Um, they arrest him when supposedly he was coming to meet uh, an individual that he thought would have been or was purported to be underage. Mm-hmm. And they found both hard copies, CDs, DVDs, as well as computer uh, evidence. So for in images involving a prepubescent minor, you get a plus two enhancement. Mm-hmm. You get a plus two for the use of a computer. If there are 10 images but fewer than 150, you add five or add two levels. If it's 300 images, but less than 600, you add four. If it's more than 600 images, you add five Mm -hmm. levels. So the problem with images is if you have a video, the video is not considered as one image. Right. Okay. And if you have multiple images, and this is what you need your forensic expert Mm -hmm. to talk about, uh, were they present, but were they actually viewed, right. right? And what happens is you can have a stream of images come in, which you may not even know mm-hmm. the, the viewer that these images are all there. You're just looking at one and you click on mm-hmm. another, and maybe you only clicked on and viewed three or four, but yet 
the uh, program uh, downloaded 600,000 plus a bunch of videos and whatever Mm -hmm. else. So under this, let's assume it's 600 or more images. You would have five plus two plus two, that's nine, add nine to 18, gets you to a level 27. And level 27 uh, puts you at 70 to 87 months, okay? So you're out uh, now, you're nearing 10 years. Right. Okay, or getting quite close, eight, nine years. Right. And do you get, there is a, uh, not an enhancement, but a uh, another, uh, calculation that is included for acceptance of responsibility in the federal system. Mm-hmm. And that would knock off two, maybe three levels. Okay, that's all. Okay. And you get the acceptance of responsibility if you pled guilty. You right. lose it and are given a built-in trial penalty if you go to trial. Correct. So because Mr. Duggar went to trial, he will not get the acceptance of responsibility adjustment. Uh, and uh, at this point in time, if we use the hypothetical, it was considered 600 images or more, mm-hmm. he's going to be at that um, uh, 70 to 87 month. Mm-hmm. And in a federal sentence, you will do, there is no parole anymore, mm-hmm. but you will get uh, credit for about 15% of the sentence per year, figure right. 60 days uh, out of a whole year, out of 365. So he will do 85% of that before mm-hmm. he would be released to a halfway house and then the supervision. Correct. Correct. Yeah. So uh, safe to say that if he is sentenced, it will be years in prison. It will be prison and mm-hmm. be many years in prison. Mm-hmm. The government's not bound by the, the prosecutor. They could ask for uh, a sentence outside the guidelines, mm-hmm. a higher sentence. And until Booker the only way a defense could do it would be to ask for a downward departure. Mm-hmm. And that was very rigidly structured, right. very minimal uh, opportunities to get mm-hmm. that. Now, post Booker, you uh, the defense lawyer argues what's called the 3553 factors, mm-hmm. all right? Um, the sentence imposed should reflect the seriousness of the offense, promote respect for the law and provide just punishment, afford adequate deterrence, protect the public from further crimes, provide the defendant with needed rehabilitation and correctional treatment in the most effective manner. Maybe if there's restitution, that means to be provided. It should also avoid undue sentencing disparities. Well, the sentencing guidelines regime was created to level out the difference, at least that was one of the rationales between uh, white collar versus street crimes. Never did it. Uh, In fact, street crime and the crack cocaine guidelines or whatever else penalized much more harshly people Mm -hmm. who were small fish and let the white collar people continue to uh, avoid prison on that end. And uh, these type of factors uh, are by and large skewed towards uh, prison because Mm -hmm. uh, and you have argued, I know, in a number of sentencing, Bree, uh, that the concept of, you know, prison being de- a realistic deterrence and actually having an effect has been disproven. Right. There's an article even uh, just this uh, month uh, that's in the state bar's publications that show national studies that that's not the case. Nonetheless, prosecutors and courts continue to argue that that is it. So mm-hmm. You need to make an example of this person. 
because of Mr. Duggar's high profile, I think he has a, uh, well, that shouldn't be a factor to be considered. It likely will. Uh, it may be. Mm -hmm. And uh, could they bring in other uh, relevant conduct? That's the terminology in yeah. federal sentencing. Well, could some of these other allegations, even though not charged and that he's not convicted of, be brought in by the PSR writer? They could right. be explored. Uh, and uh, you shouldn't be sentenced for something you haven't been found mm -hmm. guilty of. But the sentencing guidelines do allow for that because of this. Right. And I think it's even more likely in his case because the court ultimately did allow testimony right. on the molestation of underage girls yeah. at his trial. Yeah. So I'm guessing yeah. it and, will be taken. And that's called uh, the evidence code, code 404B evidence or mm -hmm. other bad acts evidence. And mm -hmm. when that's out there. Uh, it skews things because you haven't been charged with, you haven't been found guilty right. by a, a jury, but uh, that's out there and the court can consider that at sentence. In state court, we uh, have uh, sometimes dismissal and read-in counts. Mm -hmm. The read-in count uh, could be considered at sentencing, but is not added to the um, you know, uh, maximum that you would get. Right. Okay. So that's that other factor. So this will all have to be dealt with and there will be the PSR, the government, mm -hmm. sometimes in sex cases uh, and other uh, more serious cases will file their own sentencing memorandum. The defense should file one. Uh, and is there treatment needs that Mr. Duggar may or may not have? You know, the 3553 talks about correctional treatment. Well, there's really no no real program right. in prison. They're very, the ones that work are very limited and you're on a wait list for five wait years list and you may not get to it until you're in the last year of this prison sentence. Right. And uh, I think most therapists and most professionals who are going to talk about someone, whether they have an alcohol or drug problem or a sex addiction problem, mm -hmm. is you want to strike with treatment when the iron's hot. You don't have someone sit on their hands for three, four years and not get treatment and right. then start later on and hope it works. It's not going to work. Right. Exactly. Well. Exactly. So for those of you that are interested in looking at the sentencing guidelines, I will make sure to put a link in the description of this podcast. Ray, thank you so much for taking time out of your day. You're a busy man, and I really appreciate you coming in to talk about this with me. Uh, everyone else can stay tuned for, for updates on other cases, but until next time. Thank you, Bree. A couple of updates for our listeners. First off, Mr. Chandler Halderson. You might remember his case from our episode with Jason Luzak and Nicole Masnica. He is still set to be sentenced on March 17th of this year. We will keep you updated with what that sentence is or if things get adjourned. So we will stay on top of that one. As far as the Kim Kardashian and Kanye West divorce, certainly a lot has happened social media wise. I do not believe there's been any updates in the actual case though, and that is what we will bring you updates on. So as soon as something changes in the actual divorce case, we will get you an update on that as well. Thank you everyone for joining us for another episode of Zealous. This series is brought to you by Gimbel, Riley, Garen, and Brown, located in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. If you think you need a lawyer, contact us at grgblaw.com. 
Tune in for our next episode and don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode of Zealous.